Well, friends, we uh, come now in our service to the hearing of God's Word, and uh, I'm going to continue in my uh, Isaiah series that we've been going through the book of Isaiah. We, of course, take breaks, so hasn't been uh, 50-some sermons just on Isaiah, but we come now to Isaiah 41. We're going to finish up this chapter and begin chapter 42. You'll see how it, uh, it really fits together. So Isaiah 41, verse 21, through chapter 42, verse 13. Uh, we'll go all the way through verse 17, actually. Now, before I read the passage and, and have you all stand for that, well, I like to pose questions to get us thinking. Uh, what does tomorrow bring? I remember when I was a, a teenager, one of the pop rock songs that I would listen to said, whatever tomorrow brings, I'll be there with open eyes and open ears. And the song, I really like this song, but it doesn't really express any confidence for the future apart from the self. It says, I'll face whatever tomorrow brings. I've got the strength. I'll muster it up. Whatever it is, I'll deal with it. Well, as I've grown in what I appreciate, what I expect in singing, I, I really treasure the hymn, Be Still My Soul, a lot more. Uh, it says, Be still my soul, thy God doth undertake to guide the future as he has the past. Thy hope, thy confidence, let nothing shake. All now mysterious shall be bright at last. You ask yourself, what is my confidence in the future? Is it that God is guiding history? Uh, that nothing can shake our confidence if it's in our God? Uh, we're going to hear in Isaiah, how God talks about the future and gives us security for it. So let's stand now as we give our attention to God's holy word uh, in Isaiah chapter 41 and 42. Now hear God's word from Isaiah uh, 41, verse 21 through uh, 4218. Set forth your case, says the Lord. Bring your proofs, says the king of Jacob. Let them bring them and tell us what is to happen. Tell us the former things, what they are, that we may consider them, that we may know their outcome, or declare to us the things to come. Tell us what is to come hereafter, that we may know that you are gods. Do good or do harm, that we may be dismayed and terrified. Behold, you're nothing, and your work is less than nothing, and abomination is he who chooses you. I stirred up one from the north, and he has come from the rising of the sun, and he shall call upon my name. He shall trample on rulers as on mortar, as the potter treads clay. Who declared it from the beginning that we may know, and beforehand that we might say, He is right. There was none who declared it, none who proclaimed, none who heard your words. I was the first to say to Zion, Behold, here they are. And I give to Jerusalem a herald of good news. But when I look, there's no one. Among these, there is no counselor who, when I ask, gives an answer. Behold, they are all a delusion. Their works are nothing. Their metal images are empty wind. Behold, my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth, 
and the coastlands wait for His law. Thus says God, the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I will tell you of them. Sing to the Lord a new song, His praise from the end of the earth. You who go down to the sea and all that fills it, the coastlands and their inhabitants, let the desert and its cities lift up their voice, the villages that Kedar inhabits. Let the inhabitants of Selah sing for joy. Let them shout from the top of the mountains. Let them give glory to the Lord and declare His praise in the coastlands. The Lord goes out like a mighty man. Like a man of war, He stirs up His zeal. He cries out. He shouts aloud. He shows Himself mighty against His foes. For a long time I've held my peace. I've kept still and restrained myself. Now I will cry out like a woman in labor. I will gasp and pant. I will lay waste mountains and hills and dry up all their vegetation. I will turn the rivers into islands and dry up the pools. And I will lead the blind in a way that they do not know. In paths they have not known, I will guide them. I will turn the darkness before them into light, the rough places into level ground. These are the things I do, and I do not forsake them. They are turned back and utterly put to shame, who trust in carved idols, who say to metal images, you are our gods. That's the reading of God's Word. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank You that You, a God that that made heaven and earth, You're greater than we are, and yet You reveal Yourself to us that we might know You, that we might know how we can live before You, how we can serve You, how we can know the joy of, of having peace with You. Lord, You reveal Yourself to us in Your Word. And so we pray that we might cherish your word, that we might sit under your word rather than standing above it and judging it and judging you, Lord. Give us humility as we approach your word. Help us to read your word and to hear it as disciples, as those longing to meet you, longing to hear how your word applies to our life. We pray your spirit would work in us that we might hear your word and that it might search our hearts, that it might reveal our sins, that it might, that you might encourage us through your word by Your Spirit. We pray, Lord, that where there are those that haven't put their faith in Christ, that You would use this Word to, to make them turn, to open the eyes of the blind, to release them from the enslavement of sin. Lord God, we pray that You'd build up our faith, that You would strengthen us through Your Word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please uh, have a seat, everyone. Well, I think our children know that, that children's song, The Wise Man Built His House Upon the Rock. Uh, one man in that, that uh, story, that, that song, builds his house upon the rock. The other builds the house upon the sand. And what happens? Well, when the, the storm comes, the house built on the sand gets swept away, and yet the house built on the firm foundation, the, the rock, stands firm. And Jesus originally told this story in Matthew 7. He was saying that He is your firm foundation 
for the future. He and His words are a firm foundation. And the stakes you see are so high. Will you respond to Jesus? Will you listen to Him? Will you trust in Him? And I think that that picture should ask make us ask that question of ourselves. What is my life built upon? What is my hope for whatever storms may come in this sin-scarred world? Is my life built on what is true and right? Well, here in Isaiah, to show that He alone is God and that a life of trusting Him is a life of security for the future, God engages in a contest to show and to prove that He is the one to trust in. Uh, We can think about the contests of God and other so-called gods, right? These pagan deities. We can think of the great contest that we've heard about in 1 Kings in Sunday school. Uh, The contest on Mount Carmel where you had Elijah, that one man against 450 prophets of Baal, Baal. And you had the question, who's going to bring fire? Uh, These prophets of Baal, they dance around, they try to do whatever they can to bring fire, and yet there's nothing. And then Elijah stacks the deck against him. Not only is he in so-called Baal's territory, he's in the, 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 one of the central locations of Baal worship, but he stacks the deck against him even more. Not only is he outnumbered, but he says, let's pour water on the, on the wood. But then God brings the fire down, proving that he is the true God and Baal is nothing. Well, here in Isaiah, he does the same thing. He challenges the idols that people were trusting into a contest. Except the, the thing at issue here is not who's going to bring fire. The issue is who can tell the future? Who can predict the future? He will say to the idols, do something, do anything. Show us that you're real. And of course, there's no response. There can't be a response. And the, the three points I want you to see as we go through this is that first, idols don't know the future. Secondly, God controls the future. And then third, therefore, we worship Him. We sing His praises. So first, we see idols don't know the future. We've come into this, leaving off last time, knowing that the Lord has summoned people to come before Him as a judgment. There's a judgment going on. There's a court uh, in session in, in this picture here. And he's announcing world events. He says that when things come about, I'm telling you now so that you'll know that I planned it out ahead of time. And he predicts the coming of a great ruler, Cyrus, the Persian, who's going to come on the scene. He's going to make people tremble and he's going to even bring the, the exiled captives back from Babylon. But when people turn to their idols, we heard last time, and they say to each other, be strong, that, that these are just foolish attempts to find help, to find strength apart from the Lord. And he says in verse 13 of chapter 41, for I, the Lord your God, hold your right hand. It is I who say to you, fear not. I am the one who helps you. In other words, there's no other true help apart from the Lord, the God of the Bible. Well, here the Lord says, He's giving the idols their day in court. He's summoning summoning them and he's saying, you state your case. You prove yourself here before me. This is their chance to prove themselves. You see this in verse 21. Set forth your case, says the Lord. Bring your proofs, says the king of Jacob. And the challenge is, can you announce the future? 
Verse 22 and 23, let them bring them and tell us what is to happen. Tell us the former things, what they are, that we may consider them, that we may know their outcome, or to declare to us the things to come. Tell us what is to come hereafter, that we may know that you are gods. That we may know that you are gods. Friends, think for a second about the power it is to tell and predict the future. What power there is in that. What would you do if you had that power to know what was going to happen tomorrow or the day after, the week after, or the years from now? I think, frankly, many of us would build empires for ourselves. I watched a movie a couple years ago where the people did just that. They, these engineers made a time machine in their basement, and what did they use this power to go back in time and jump ahead in time for? Well, they learned what the stock market was doing so they could play the stock market and make themselves enormously rich, placing bets on these companies they knew were going to win big. What would you do with this? Now, the fact that time travel has been such a great theme in, in literature and movies reminds us of just how uh, powerful knowing the future is. But think about what God does with his knowledge, his omniscience, his perfect planning of the future. Think about what he does in condescending to care and to serve us. Well, here he challenges the idols to tell them the future, and there's no response because, of course, there can't be. Images of bulls, wooden, silver, golden idols. They may have mouths, but of course they can't speak. They certainly can't predict the future. Now, we think about ourselves, and we've been hearing about idolatry a lot in Isaiah. Now, some of you may have objects in your homes that you treat like an idol, that you cherish. Uh, But when we apply these words to ourselves and idolatry to ourselves, as we see it in Isaiah, we remember how the New Testament talks about idolatry as well, such as when Colossians calls greed idolatry. If money is your idol, you can ask that. How is that going to protect you in the future? Can it tell you what's going to happen? However secure your assets may be in a worldly sense, however millions you accumulate, they can be gone in an instant. I've known people who retired early only to have the stock market go down quite a bit, so they had to sell their mansion and go back to work. How many athletes have made millions only to squander it and lose it? There are other idols, of course, and not only are idols and insufficient security for the future, but they're completely impotent. They don't have power. Listen to the last section of verse 23. Isaiah says, just do something to prove to us that you're real. Do anything, do good or harm, that we may be dismayed or terrified. But we know, of course, 1 Corinthians 8 says, idols have no real existence. There is no God but one. These empty shells that people worship can't give anything. They're counterfeits. They're imposters. They're deceivers all. And Isaiah brings out this deception here. Um, Verse 24, he says, Behold, you are nothing. Your work is less than nothing. An abomination is he who chooses you. This is God saying this to idols. One translator puts it this way. Your work is a total puff of air. Just picture smoke. It's there for a moment and then it's gone. It doesn't even have a Uh, really a physical substance that you can touch. And I want you to notice something about verse 24. We tend to think that when we set our hearts on things, it doesn't affect us. 
But idolatry is not neutral. Notice, he who chooses an idol is like an idol. He's an abomination. She's an abomination. This is the nature of idolatry. It makes us like it. You are. You become like what you worship. So what does God do after we hear nothing from the idols in this context? Contest. Well, he predicts the future. In fact, he, pre- he predicts the future so precisely that modern scholars, when they come to the book of the prophecy of Isaiah, they say, this is, this is too perfect. Isaiah couldn't have done this. This is the work of, there was one Isaiah, there was another guy who, who took the name of Isaiah later on, there was a third person who took the name of Isaiah because Isaiah couldn't speak ahead. Human beings can't know the future. This is how these scholars who have uh, gone off and, and taken the supernatural, taken God out of the equation, taken the Holy Spirit's inspiration out of the equation. That's how they read Isaiah. And yet Jesus referred to each of these so-called three sections of Isaiah. And he says, this is the work of the prophet Isaiah, the one person. And one of the things that we see predicted so accurately in these sections and in this section is the coming of that man, Cyrus, the ruler who would come and destroy, take over these nations like Babylon, 539 B.C. He's going to be named specifically in chapter 44. But here he's mentioned in verse 25, I stirred up one from the north. He's come from the rising of the sun. So forth. So the Lord here is doing what the idols can't. He's predicting the future so accurately that people say, this this can't be real. And then the Lord reminds us that He, no one else, can predict and promise the future. He says, I'm the one who's saying this. I'm declaring it to you. You heard it here first. Verse 26, Who declared it from the beginning that we may know and beforehand that we might say, He's right. There was none who declared it, none who proclaimed, none who heard your words. I was the first to say to Zion, Behold, they are here. I give to Jerusalem a herald of good news. But when I look, there's none. Among these, there is no counselor who, when I ask, gives an answer. You can see how Romans 11 takes these words and and, and uses them in, in Paul's marvel of glory, doxology. When he praises the Lord, he says, Who can be the Lord's counselor? There's no one who can instruct him. Who can teach the one who is omniscient? And then he sums up what this means for idols. Verse 29, Behold, they're all a delusion. Their works are nothing. Their metal images are empty wind. Friends, do you know that idols are a delusion? They're a delusion. We think about what a delusion is. We remember how Hebrews talks about the deceitfulness of sin. We can say the same thing is true for idols. We think, we build up things in our minds. We say, when this happens, when I get this, it'll be so great and I'll finally be happy. And yet when it comes, it's like empty wind. We're disappointed. We're deceived. Sin makes great promises and it never fulfills what it promises. Once I get to the top of school, I get the best grade in class, I'm the valedictorian, then I'll, I'll be there, I'll be happy. Once I get into this Ivy League school, then I'll be happy. Once I get married, then I'll be happy. We set these idols up for ourselves, but we're deluded when we think that we can have rest and satisfaction apart from God. 
I was thinking of uh, the example of the illustration of Shakespeare's Macbeth. He's idolizing kingship, and he gets kingship, but what does he find? He laments, tomorrow goes by, all the days are the same. And then he concludes that life's but a walking shadow, a poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage and is heard no more, a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. That's someone who has been burned by the deceitfulness of sin and the delusional nature of idolatry. He gets what he wants and he realizes it's empty. Sin deceives you. It's like a mirage. It leaves us thirsty like salt water. It takes and it takes and it empties because our hearts are restless until they find their rest in the Lord. So friends, ask yourselves, what are my idols? What are your idols? You can idolize material materialism, having all the toys, all the inventions, all the houses and cars, idolatry of our nation, country, sex, achievement, beauty, praise. Ask yourself, what is it that I I feel I must have in this life to be happy and contented? There's a slavery in these things. And it's been said that idols set up a delusional field in in that they, they set up these false laws I must do this, therefore I'll have this. These are all against God's definitions. And so our sin not only endangers us and it makes us, it hurts our souls, but of course it grieves the Lord. And here he brings that out. He says, I'm not going to give my glory to anyone else. And here in contrast to the idols, he says that he controls the future. This is one of those places in Scripture where perhaps the chapter and verse divisions don't uh, don't pan out quite the way because I think this is one section here as we go from chapter 41 into 42. Uh, remember, these divisions are, are not inspired, but they're added for our convenience so that we can look up things and reference things. So we have these chapter and verse divisions. But notice how uh, this last section of chapter 41 ends with, Behold... Uh, verse 24, Behold, you're nothing, and your work is less than nothing. And then we get to verse 29. Behold, they are all delusion. Their works are nothing. Their metal images are empty wind. And then, chapter 42, we hear it again. Behold my servant whom I uphold. These things are meant to go together. And we come to this wonderful section about the servant of the Lord that Jesus said is about himself. He is the servant of the Lord. Listen to these wonderful words. Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break. A faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth. The coastlands wait for his law. So again, friends, The Lord is here declaring the future. He's telling what's going to happen. He's going to send His Son, the servant of the Lord. God had great things planned for His people, even though at this moment, things were cloudy. Remember what we've heard. The exile is on the horizon. Chapter 39. People are going to go through great suffering, and yet there's hope beyond these moments of suffering. They're going to be reestablished in the land. There's a servant of the Lord who's to come, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we could spend 
uh, whole sermons on each of these glorious statements about the servant of the Lord. Uh, next Sunday, in fact, I'm going to dig in a little bit more deeper, uh, deeply in the servant of the Lord in these verses. But it says he's God's chosen. God's soul delights in him. God's spirit dwells in him. He brings justice. He's gentle. He doesn't force things in a sinful way. He, he doesn't make a commotion crying in the streets. He doesn't break the fragile and the vulnerable. He doesn't grow weary or discouraged. And Matthew 12 says this is fulfilled in Jesus. He's the servant of the Lord. Notice that the character of God's servants matters. The character of God's servants matters. And think about Jesus Himself predicting the future. Remember John 2. He pointed to the temple. And He he said, destroy this temple in three days. I will raise it up again. He predicted His resurrection. And think about how amazing it was that He had this ability. He's God. He's the God-man. He has the ability. He knows the future. And yet, what has He done with that? Instead of building an empire for Himself as we would do, He has served you with this knowledge of the future. You know, if we could predict the future, we would use that ability for our own glory to make others serve us for our own benefit. But the eternal God takes on human flesh and makes Himself a servant, knowing the future, knowing suffering of the cross was ahead of Him. This is what Paul is marveling at in Philippians 2, that God, having equality, that Jesus having equality with God, condescended to take on the form of a servant. Truly, there is no contest between God and idols. Idols want you to serve them, but Christ, in God in Christ first serves you and then calls you to serve Him. Notice after it talks here about the servant of the Lord in these first four verses, the Lord then speaks to the servant in verses 5-8. through eight. Thus says God, the Lord who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth that comes from it and what comes from it, who gives breath to the peoples on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out from the dungeon prisoners from the prison those who sit in darkness. So as coming chapters of Isaiah are going to unfold, Isaiah's servant of the Lord is not just a singular person, but the church is described this way. The people of God, Israel is described as the servant of the Lord, the church. But also... That one person is described. Jesus Christ. That's how Matthew takes it. That's how Jesus interpreted it. These things can both be true. One of the commentators I was reading said, we find that both can be considered true since the idea may be viewed from two different sides, that of responsibility and accomplishments. In other words, God is pointing to this and saying, this is how you are to be. You're to be a light to the nations. And yet only Christ, in Christ, is this fulfilled. This is how Jesus is and how Jesus enables us. Think about that calling on the church then. The church is called to be a light to the peoples, the nations. The church is chosen by God, called in righteousness. He takes us by the hand. He keeps us and protects us. But of course, we think of Israel, they fell short in this calling, didn't they? 
They were certainly calling, falling short of it when Isaiah said these words. They worshipped idols. They were like the nations around them instead of being a light to the nations. And yet one man in particular, Jesus Christ, would come from them and serve the Lord and redeem them to be servants of the Lord. We know that the servant songs of Isaiah, as we've seen here, they'll lead to chapter 53. That amazing servant song that talks about the suffering of the servant who gives his life as a ransom for many, who takes our sins upon himself. Remember the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts chapter 8 when he's reading the scroll of, of Isaiah and Philip comes and he says to Philip, who is this about? Is, this, is the prophet talking about himself or someone else? And then what does it say? Philip opened his mouth and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. Jesus is this servant who succeeds where Israel failed. He died for our sins as a suffering servant, and yet he rose from the dead as he predicted. He ascended on high. He sets prisoners free, the spiritually enslaved, and he sends his spirit. He sends his spirit to open the eyes of the spiritually blind, to give you spiritual sight, to see, to, to live out this calling in and through Christ. Think about this. We're united to Jesus Christ, the servant of the Lord. And as we're united to Jesus Christ, we become more like Him as 2 Corinthians says, we behold His glory and we're being transformed to be like Him. And glory is something that Isaiah speaks a lot about. Here we hear verse 8 and 9 of chapter 42. I'm the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass. New things I now declare before they spring forth, I tell you of them. God gets all the glory in saving sinners, in saving you. He gets all the glory in remaking you and molding you to be like Jesus Christ, this servant of the Lord. Think about gentleness. It says here that the servant of the Lord doesn't break a bruised reed. That's talking about something that's vulnerable, that's about to break if it's handled without care. How often is it that you do that? How often do we do that? We use too much force. We're not careful. We're not gentle. We hurt feelings. We say things that aren't, aren't right. Why is it? So often it's because we're trying to make something happen for ourselves. We're trying to bring our world under our control. James 4 talks about that. We didn't read it, but he says, where do quarrels and fights come from? They come because you have an idolatry that you're pursuing and you're trying to bring about that idolatry by your own doing. We fight and we quarrel, it says, for the things we think we need rather than praying and asking God for them. Think about this. If you trust God for your future, if you lay your future at his feet, then you'll be characterized with gentleness. If you're not gentle, ask yourself, what are my idols? What are the idols that I'm pursuing that I'm trying to bring about by my own devices because I'm not trusting the Lord for the future? You won't take things into matters into your own hands in a sinful way if you trust your future to the Lord. Isn't it amazing to take what Isaiah says about the servant of the Lord here, uh, Jesus Christ, and realize that is applying to the church as well. 
You're God's chosen in Christ. Chosen in Christ. His delight is in you through Jesus Christ. He looks upon you and He sees a perfect servant because He looks upon you and sees the perfection of Jesus Christ accounted to you, received by faith alone. As you know well, we partake of the Lord's Supper every Sunday here. And what do we hear? Jesus says, this is the new covenant in my blood. Well, here it says, God gives the servant of the Lord as a covenant for the peoples, as a light to the nations. How will we respond to the servant of the Lord and what He's done for us? How will we respond to the predictions of God that He makes promises and He fulfills them? They come about. How will we respond? Well, we should respond with repentance, mourning over our sins, mourning over idolatries, mourning over the ways where we do take matters into our own hands. We don't trust Him for the future. We should repent, but we should also rejoice. These things go hand in hand as we mourn over our sins and yet see there's mercy found in this servant who doesn't break Bruce Reed, even though that's who we are in our sin. And that brings us to the last section here, my final brief point, that we're called to worship God. How do we live out this great calling to be a servant of the Lord ourselves, to be a light to the nations around us, the peoples who are in darkness? Well, we are to reflect the glory of God. Our response to God's amazing grace, His perfect planning of the future is to sing. That's where Isaiah goes, verse 10. Sing to the Lord a new song, His praise from the ends of the earth, you who go down to the sea and all that fill it. He says, let them shout from the top of the mountains for joy. Let them give glory to the Lord. Declare His praise in the coastlands. The Lord goes out like a mighty man, like a man of war. He stirs up his zeal. He cries out. He shouts aloud. He shows himself mighty against his foes. Friends, do you sing God's praises? Do you shout it on the mountaintops? Behold God's glory and declare it to the peoples. He comes at just the right time. This is what verses 14 and 16 get at, that the Lord is withheld himself, but at just the right time, he brings what he needs. He turns darkness into light. But there's a warning here at the end of this passage, isn't there? Verse 17 reminds us that if you refuse to worship our God, the true God who tells the future, you're going to suffer. Verse 17 says, they are turned back and utterly put to shame who trust in carved idols, who say to metal images, you are our gods. Doesn't it always come back to trust? Do you trust God for the future? We can modernize this, of course, because we don't tend to trust in metal objects. Those who trust in science, who say to billboards, you are our gods, who trust in politicians, says they'll be put to shame. The, gr- the future is truly grim if you trust in yourself and in the things of this world the idols that you've made and that others in this world have tried to get you to buy into. But when the Lord is your God, when Jesus is your servant and your Savior, the suffering servant for you, your Savior and your Lord, you can truly say that whatever tomorrow brings, I'm the Lord's servant and my delight is in Him. Let's trust Him and pray to Him. Our Heavenly Father, we thank You that where we would be deluded forever because of our sin, because we exchange the glory of God 
for a lie. You have worked to open our eyes, to give light in the darkness through Jesus Christ and Your Holy Spirit working in us so that now we see the glory of Jesus Christ, the glory of the servant of the Lord. We have eyes to see. We pray that You would give us more and more eyes to see. Help us to be hungry and thirsty to know more of Christ, to be conformed to His image, to behold His glory, and as we behold His glory, to be transformed, to be like Him, because we become what we worship. Oh Lord God, mold us to be like Christ. Show us Your glory. Help us to revel in You and sing Your praises. And Lord, instill in us a firm trust in You for the future. Oh Lord, work in us those things that please You through Jesus Christ, in whom we are Your servants. We pray this in His name. Amen.